0: Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fan Sided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fan sided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay, and we are coming to you couple hours after the NBA trade deadline, which unfortunately did not provide us with as much content as uh, we might have been hoping for, especially on the Phoenix Suns front. We had a record number of deals today and the Suns partook in none of those deals. Um, they decided to stand pat at the trade deadline, which, to be fair, is fine. It's not the end of the world. The Suns did not need to make a move which we should kind of take a step back and count our blessings a little bit because in years past it's been very obvious when the team needs to make a move or multiple moves to get out of whatever terrible roster situation it's found itself in. But in this case, the Suns were in a place of privilege where they could take a step back, look at the trade deadline, and say, eh, we're good. We like the roster that we have. So that in and of itself is a testament to the team that James Jones has, you know, Completely manufactured by himself over a two year span here in Phoenix. Um, but it also could come back to haunt this team. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but for starters, let's recap the week a little bit. Uh, in the last couple of days, the Suns did a very Suns thing that we've seen them do multiple times this season, and they lost to an inferior opponent. Um, they lost to the Orlando Magic, despite being up by as many as, I think, 13 points in the first quarter which, you know, it's the first quarter over the span of a 48-minute NBA game. Things are like that are going to happen. You're going to lose a lead. But keep in mind, just a few weeks prior, the Suns had done something similar. They went up very early on the Orlando Magic in that first quarter as well. Devin Booker went crazy. Um, and the Phoenix Suns just kind of cruised the rest of the way because they set the tone early and they were facing an inferior Magic team. Uh, They were facing them again. And in this case, they were facing them on the eve of the trade deadline when so many of the Magic's players were involved in all these trade rumors and they still couldn't get it done. I think in this case, it was kind of like a a last act of defiance for some of these Magic players to, um, you know, not just establish their trade value, but remind the Orlando front office like, hey, we're still good. Um, You know, either get us out of here or remember that we're still good. Um, and that's kind of what we saw in the game. Uh, and the Suns dropped another one to an inferior opponent. So after this game, I kind of botched the tweet on this because I tweeted out this stat after the game. This is what I get for trying to cover NBA basketball while I'm still recovering from the vaccination shot that I got, which knocked me on my ass, by the way. <laughs> um, but the Suns are actually 13-6 and six against teams that are at or above 500 And they are 16 and eight against teams below 500. So, for those of you who are not mathematicians, the Suns actually have a better winning percentage against teams that are at or above 500 than they do against teams that are below 500. They have eight losses to teams that are below 500 as opposed to six against teams that are at or above 500, which is bizarre Um, and pretty much says it all about this team's ability to play down to its competition, no matter who they're playing. <laughs> um, they'd obviously be, they'd honestly be the one seed in the West. If they stop blowing double digit leads against crappy teams, um, you know, even if it is a double digit lead, that's in the first half, that doesn't matter if you're playing a team like Orlando, um, you know, Monty said he wasn't frustrated after the loss and kind of chalked it up to guys being tired and it being the second night of a back-to-back. And I get that, but you know, it's Orlando, you got to beat Orlando. You got to start winning games like these, Um, and I think in this case, Monty gave Devin Booker too long of a break between the first and the second quarter. I think Booker had like 12 first quarter points. Um, and he sat with like two or three minutes left in the first quarter and then didn't come back until like the six or seven minute mark of the second quarter. That was just too long to leave him on the sidelines, even if he's trying to like help the bench play through it with the bench's recent struggles, especially Dario Saric, but Um, you know, this is something that's come up with money before. So hopefully it's not something we see too often moving forward. Um, the good news is that the starting unit is up to a positive net rating, uh, on the season, which is great considering how bad it was there for most of the season. And even until about as recently as three or four weeks ago. So the sun starting lineup is on the right track. And despite all their struggles against teams below 500, they're still tied for the third best record in the NBA. The third, they have the third best point differential. They have the third best net rating. And they're one of only three teams in the NBA with a top 10 offensive and defensive rating. All of those things are typically indicative of teams that can compete for championships. So, um, you know, this is still a very good team. And come playoff time, they won't have to worry about playing teams that are below 500. Um, You know, maybe if they were at the top of the East, that'd be a different story, (laughs) but they're in the West. So all of the teams that are going to be making the playoffs are going to be at or above 500. Um, And they're actually, there's only one team in the NBA with a better record against teams that are at or above 500. That's the Utah Jazz who are 17 and six. The Suns are 13 and six. And then following up, the Suns are the Nets at 14 and seven. But if you're looking for a comparison, a lot of these other teams that are more generally seen as like playoff threats or title contenders uh, haven't fared as well against the, the game's best competition. So the Sixers are only 11 and nine against teams at or above 500. The Bucks are nine and eight. The Clippers are 12 and 10 and both the Lakers and the Nuggets are 11 and 10. So, you know, don't panic. I know it's easy to panic with this team because it seems like their wins are these triumphant, Um, you know, statement wins and then their losses are just these debilitating, inexplicable losses to bad teams. But um, they are winning the games that matter and come playoff time, all of those games will matter. So that is a good thing, at least. Uh, But let's switch gears and move on to the trade deadline. Uh, Like I said, not a lot to talk about for the Phoenix Suns. In this case, Um, they did nothing at the trade deadline. They did make a trade uh, last week, for Torrey Craig and got him for basically nothing, which was a good move to kind of bolster up the rotation there. He's basically looked like a more stable version of Abdul Nader um, because Nader can be a little bit erratic. He makes a lot of mistakes. Um, But Torrey Craig is a better defender, and so far he's been a great cutter, a good slasher, um, just a smart player who's made a lot of under-the-radar plays. Um, So that's been good for the Suns and it's not the end of the world that they didn't make a move uh, on Thursday for the trade deadline. However, their depth, which is a huge advantage right now, like I've said in the past, they have the, the sun's bench has the league's best total point differential. I think it's plus 107 um, and it's by a mile. The next best team is like plus 79 uh, in total point differential on the season but that depth is going to matter less come playoff time because rotations are going to get chopped down to eight, maybe nine guys. And that matters a lot more for a team who's that has four players, four of its top seven players who have never played in a playoff game. So that's Devin Booker. That's Mikhail Bridges. That's Deandre Ayton. And that's Cam Johnson. That's four of their top seven players. If you throw in Chris Paul, Jay Crowder and Dario Saric who have never been to the playoffs before, have never experienced that. I think we all agree that Devin Booker is probably going to be fine in that setting. He's been waiting years for this moment. And we saw what he did um, with playoff implications on the line in the bubble. Um, but we don't know how it's going to affect Cam Johnson. We don't know how it's going to affect Mikhail Bridges. And we especially don't know how it's going to affect DeAndre. And there might be some nerves there um, because this is their first playoff series that we're going to see from them. So you know, when those rotations get shorter and you're relying on a lot of guys that don't have playoff experience, it might've been a good idea to add another player to that that top eight man core that you're going to be rocking with in a postseason battle. So, you know, that depth is going to fade away a little bit and the Suns are going to have less of an advantage on that front. So they better be hoping that a lot of these youngsters are ready to go when the playoffs kick off. Um, the part that was rough about the trade deadline Um, wasn't as much the Suns not doing anything as it was some of the teams around them getting better. Uh, The most notable example is obviously the Denver Nuggets uh, who are three and a half games back of the Suns right now um, in that five spot. They made a trade for Aaron Gordon and they also made one for JaVale McGee. And those were both two Suns targets that we've mentioned in the past uh, on the last episode, actually about potential Suns trade targets. Um, Aaron Gorder, Aaron Gordon is a really good defender and he's an improved three-point shooter. Uh, he's given the suns problems in the past. As far as his defense is concerned, he's a guy that can guard those threes, those fours. Um, a lot of the guys that the Suns are going to be trotting out there and give them problems with his strength on the other end. So that's not great for the Suns that the nuggets got their hands on him. And JaVale McGee bolsters kind of the nuggets eight man core, because if you look at their core It's going to be Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, Gordon, McGee, Paul Millsap, uh, Monty Morris, Will Barton, um, and Michael Porter Jr. That's a pretty solid eight-man core there. Um, I I still like the Suns better, probably, um, but you got to factor that inexperience in there as well. So just something to keep an eye on. The Blazers also upgraded. They traded Rodney Hood and Gary Trent Jr. to get Norman Powell. Um, And I actually was shocked to see how well Norman Powell was shooting the ball because I thought they downgraded in the three-point shooting department and was kind of wondering why. Norman Powell is actually shooting better from three-point range than Gary Trent Jr., who is known as kind of this three-point specialist. Um, Powell's putting up 19.6 points per game on 43.6% shooting from three-point range. And it's not like it's coming on a limited number of attempts. He's taken six and a half threes per game. So he's getting a lot of shots up. He's making a lot of them. And I think he's a better defender than Trent as well. So the Blazers, who are also three and a half games behind the Suns, got better. Um, And then there's the Dallas Mavericks, who gave Luka Doncic two more shooters uh, in J.J. Redick and Niccolo Niccolo Melli. Um, You know, Redick's not shooting the ball as well this season. I think he's like around 36%. But Luke and Rick Carlisle are going to get the best out of him. And the prospect of being on a better team than the Pelicans is probably going to get a better performance out of J.J. Redick. Um, And they just have the offense and the distributors to make that shooting matter a little bit more. So the Mavs are five games back of the Suns. And even if these three teams that I'm talking about don't like catch the Suns or pass them in the standings, they're still tougher first-round matchups for the Suns now depending on where these teams all finish. I, I think unless the sun's like randomly decided to start losing and fell back to fourth or fifth, they're probably not going to have to worry about the nuggets in the first round, but maybe the second round now that they're a better team, uh, depending on what happens with the Lakers health or the Clippers uh, pandemic P problem. <laughs> you know, you never know who's going to be waiting in that second round or even that first round now. Um, Cause the Mavericks are cur- currently in the seventh spot. If the season ended today, they'd be facing the Mavericks. I think the sun's fare better in that matchup. I think that's a pretty good matchup for them, but um, you know, the Mavs just got a little bit more dangerous, got a little bit more experience, got a little bit more shooting um, and, and tougher to guard on the defensive end. So, you know, the good news is the Lakers stood pat, they couldn't get anything done. They had limited means to get better, but uh you know, that could actually kind of backfire as well, because with LeBron out for the next three to five weeks with no timetable for Anthony Davis's return with that calf injury, the Lakers could plummet down the standings. And if they fall as far as like seven or eight, then you're looking at a potentially dicey situation where the Lakers are healthy for the first round playoff series, but they are a seven or an eight seed. And that's the matchup that nobody wants in the first round playing the defending champs like that. Um, so that would be a total worst case scenario and a total Suns thing to happen is facing a fully healthy Lakers squad in the first round, um, even with home court advantage. But uh, you're hoping that the Lakers don't plummet that far over the next, you know, three to four weeks until LeBron and AD are hopefully back. But, um, you know, the Clippers, the Clippers made a move. They got, uh, they got Rajon Rondo and gave up Lou Will for him. I feel like that's a downgrade for them. They're putting a lot of stock in the legend of playoff Rondo there. Um, but, you know, on paper, playoff Rondo, if he is able to make another appearance at age, I think Rondo's 35 now, if he is able to make another appearance, he's a better defender than Lou Will. He is a capable contributor and driver and, and kind of facilitator, some, a more typical true point guard that the Clippers needed. Um, and he's actually shot the ball from three-point range well over the last couple postseasons with the Lakers and the Pelicans. Um, he's made teams pay for leaving him. So, uh, you know, the Clippers may have gotten a little more dangerous. I'm more likely to call that a downgrade, but you never know. Playoff Rondo always surprises people every year, so you really just never know. Um, and then the Jazz, they also stood pat, so that's good news. There wasn't a lot they could realistically do to improve um. You know They've lost four of their last nine games, but they're still the top seed in the West because the Suns keep losing these stupid games to worse teams. <laughs> um, but yeah, their, their core is kind of built on the chemistry that they've built on both ends of the floor. So making a trade wouldn't make sense for them. The good news is they stood pat. And like I said, they've lost four of their last nine. So maybe they continue to kind of come back down to earth a little bit and the Suns are able to sneak into that one spot. Uh, but they got to stop playing down to their competition. So who really knows at this point? Yeah. Um, But yeah, like I said, kind of limited number of topics to talk about with the Suns since they didn't make any moves. They're standing pat and they are comfortable with their rotation. They're legitimately three players deep at every position, which is great, um, but that's not going to matter as much come playoff time. So uh, you really hope that that depth comes into play over the next few weeks, helps them climb into that one seed, uh, helps them overcome some of these issues that we've seen lately where now the starters are on, but the bench is off, and they keep losing to inferior opponents. Hopefully they're they're able to um, kind of shore up some of these deficiencies over the next few months, and uh, you know make the most of the depth that they have to make that run for the one seed, uh, and then be prepared to shorten that rotation come playoff time. And hopefully these young guys are ready to step up as well. But uh, we're gonna take a quick break and be right that be right back with our G-rated segment after this. All right. So that's going to wrap up our son's talk for today. And we're going to move on to our G-rated segment. Now I've given you guys a lot of recommendations that are pretty popular shows or movies, um, kind of the shows or movies that everyone's been talking about over the last year or over the last couple of weeks, whatever the case may be. Um, But I actually kind of want to give you a recommendation that you might not have seen or might not have heard of. Um, so for our G rated segment today, we're going to be talking about a show called Servant, which is on Apple TV plus. Um, I know not a lot of people have Apple TV plus cause it only has like a handful of shows and only like half of them are worth watching, you know, Ted Lasso, the morning show and the rest are just kind of hit or miss. But, uh, Servant is one that should be on your radar, especially if you're looking for something in the kind of, uh, What's the genre? It's not horror necessarily, but it, it's kind of uh, disturbing and it's, it's more of a thriller type show, uh, keep you in suspense kind of thing. It's produced by M. Night Shyamalan, so no surprise there. But uh, the premise is that it's, it's set basically all in this house in Philadelphia. Uh, and there's this couple that takes a nanny on. Uh, her name is Leanne, played by Nell Tiger Free. I did not make that name up. Um, but they take this nanny into their home, this couple. The husband's name is Sean, played by Toby Kebbell, and the wife is Dorothy, played by Lauren Ambrose. Um, And they're actually, it's it's basically a four-character cast for the most part. There are other minor characters that pop in and out, but it really revolves around these four. So the nanny, the husband, the wife, and then the wife's brother, Julian, who is played by Rupert Grint, a.k.a. Ron Weasley. Um, And it's great. Like, he's the comic relief, Uh, for a show that's otherwise pretty dark and foreboding. But if you've ever wanted to hear Ron Weasley say fuck and things like that, uh, this is a great show for you. (laughs) You're going to love it. But um, so they invite this nanny in to take care of their child. And the twist is that their child is a baby. It's a lifelike doll, um, which Dorothy is prescribed as transitory object therapy after she suffers a full psychotic break because their real son Jericho died, uh, their real baby died at 13 weeks old. Um, so only six weeks after their real baby died, they're inviting this nanny into their home to take care of this, you know, reborn doll, basically. Um, and everyone in the house is acting like this this doll is really Jericho, the baby, so that Dorothy can kind of get back up on her feet you know, not suffer a psychotic break, get back to work. She's a news reporter. Um, And so it's kind of a weird thing. But Leanne comes into this house. And without even having to be told to act like this, you know, doll is a real baby, she kind of starts doing it. So it's very unsettling, because Leanne starts off as this very creepy, weird babysitter, who's totally just going along with this idea that this, this doll is an actual child. Um, so as it goes along, I don't want to ruin any of the, the spoilers or, or give away any of the twists because there are numerous twists throughout the course of the show, um, but I will just give broad strokes here. So Leanne is kind of creepy and it turns out that she was sent to this couple as part of a cult. Um, and she kind of has these supernatural abilities Um, She's very religious. This cult is obviously religious. Um, But when she prays or when she self-flagellates, you know, she like whips herself, she is able to do some unnatural shit. Like, so by, by the end of the first episode, they go upstairs because they hear crying on the baby monitor, which is on, but it's never going to do anything because it's a doll, but they hear crying on the baby monitor and they go in there. And this is, I think Leanne's first night or second night in the house They go in there and there's an actual baby where the doll was. So, um, you know, Sean and and the brother Julian are freaking out because obviously, like, whose baby is this? Where did this baby come from? But they can't act on it or show it because, you know, then it's going to give away to Dorothy. Like, Dorothy takes it in stride. She doesn't notice the difference because she's thought this doll was her baby the whole time. So they can't do anything and be like, well, what do we do with this baby? Because if they do, then they'll be revealing to Dorothy that this whole time she's been treating a doll like a baby and she'll suffer another psychotic breakdown. Um, So it's very interesting how they try to navigate that, um, that, that rocky terrain between keeping Dorothy sane and worrying, like, where did this new nanny steal a live baby from, um, so it's very unsettling and like the way that it's filmed it it, so it like twists your belief in who is sane and who isn't like what leanne is capable of whether she's a victim like what this cult that she's a part of is capable of like who's in the right who's in the wrong who's guilty who's not um it's a very interesting show and it doesn't lean too heavily into like religion or anything but the religious component is an aspect as far as where Leanne is able to do some of these supernatural things. And it's unclear like kind of what God she's praying to and what this cult believes in, but it's obviously some pretty creepy shit that comes to light about all of these characters in the show. Um, And like I said, I won't spoil anything, but the show 99% of it takes place in this one house where they live in Philadelphia um, it has like multiple floors and whatnot, so it doesn't get stale, but it's filmed so claustrophobically that it really hones in on, on the madness and the sense that all of these people are kind of trapped by their relationships and their commitments to each other. Um, and all of these people are just kind of unstable. Um, so at one point, like the baby goes missing and Leanne tries to take another job with another house that has a lot of kids and the parents are like grandparents and they're very sick. Um, and Dorothy basically poisons and kidnaps her to get her back, Um, and the cult tries to get Leanne back and and get her to forget about this new family, this Turner family that she's been taking care of, and she stays loyal despite the awful things that she finds out about the Turners, Um, and season two, which wrapped up last Friday uh, a week ago, uh, basically ends with Leanne inciting a full-on war with this cult, so... It's going to be, I have no idea how this series is going to play out. Like I honestly have no idea what's going to happen on a week to week basis with this show. Um, And season one was kind of frustrating because it didn't wrap up really anything. It was one of those shows that leaves you with way more questions than answers. Um, It was more of a slow boil, but I feel like in season two, that slow boil is really starting to rise. Um, And it does leave you with questions still because there is going to be a season three of the show. Um, but it's far more interesting and a little bit more fast paced in season two. It feels like a lot of stuff actually started happening in season two. Um, so I hope that it's able to eventually deliver on all the creepiness and, and head fuckery that's at, uh, that's at work here so far. Um, but it really is serving up kind of an interesting combo and it's a very different show than a lot of ones that are on right now. Um, so I, I I definitely recommend checking it out at least and seeing if you can if you can get through season one. I feel like season two is much more rewarding, um, just because it's it's impossible to guess what's going to happen next and what's going on and you know who is playing what role in this madness. Um, and the actors are really good too because Sean, you feel for him; he's just trying to keep his wife sane and hold on. He, you know, he's dealing with his own. Depression, as far as losing his son, and he's trying to keep his wife sane, but he's also like not trying to kidnap a child that he thinks is someone else's. And then there's Julian, who has his old, whole issues, but is kind of the comic relief. And um, and Dorothy, who's played by Ambrose, is just really good at, at straddling the line between sympathetic and like straight loony, because you feel bad for her for what she's suffered through. And, and the role that she played in all of this happening. Um, but but she's just clearly bonkers as well. <laughs> and she really straddles that line between sanity and sympathetic. So it's it's a really interesting show, like I said, very claustrophobically filmed, um, and definitely worth checking out. For my G rating for this show for the first two seasons, I'm gonna give it a seven point five out of ten which seems low. You know, normally if I'm really recommending a show, I'd probably give it an eight or a nine. Um, But I'd say 7.5 is good. Like this is a good show and I feel like it could get great if it goes in the right direction for season three, but um, definitely an underrated show that not a lot of people are talking about. And if you're looking for something different to try, uh, I would highly recommend it, but that's going to do it for this episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast. Please make sure to subscribe, tell your friends, uh, write me a review with a couple of shows or movies you've watched recently, and maybe we'll talk about them on a future show. But for this episode, this is Gerald Borgay signing off.